Good morning. My name is Taylor Sutton. I work with the high school and college and young adults here at ZF, and it's great to be with you this morning. We are in the midst of a sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit, gospel freedom, and the fruit of the Spirit. And today, we come to goodness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about goodness compared to some of the other virtues of the fruit of the Spirit, it's a little hard to get my arms around it. It can be hard to pinpoint what it would look like for me to grow in goodness. If you were to tell me, be more patient or be more joyful, uh, immediately specific areas of my life would come to mind. But the idea of goodness can sound a bit vague, generic, the moral equivalent of the color beige. Or maybe goodness to you just sounds unattainable. Like, didn't Jesus say only God is good? And if that's the case, why bother trying to be something that we never will be? What I hope to convince you of this morning is that when Paul refers to the concept of goodness in the fruit of the Spirit, he has something in mind that is more concrete and more pointed than generic decency. Here's how one uh, Greek dictionary defines the word he uses in Galatians 5.22. Goodness is a positive moral quality characterized especially by interest in the welfare of others. This same word can sometimes mean specifically generosity. Jerry Bridges, in his book on the fruit of the Spirit, defines goodness this way. Bridges writes, goodness is kindness in action. That's a great definition. Goodness is kindness in action. And if that's what goodness is, then certainly you and I need more of it. And the world around us is starving to see more of it. So would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, we'll be looking this morning at verses 7 through 10. This is just a few paragraphs after the paragraph with the fruit of the Spirit. And in this passage, Paul expands a little bit on what it would look like to increase in goodness. Let's read it together. Galatians 6. 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 
So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Here's what this passage shows us about goodness. Christians make other people's lives better. Christians make other people's lives better. This passage has two parts to it. In the first part, Paul shows us how goodness fits into the broader context of the Christian life. That's verses 7 and 8. How does goodness fit into the Christian life? Then in verses 9 and 10, Paul shows us what goodness looks like. What does goodness look like in action? So let's work through both parts of this passage. First, how does goodness fit into the Christian life? Verses 7 and 8. So first in verse 7, we see a principle. It's a common one in Scripture. It's actually a common one around the world, across the ages. This idea of sowing and reaping, planting seeds and getting a return, reaping a harvest. Here, Paul has a specific application of this principle in mind, and he expresses that in verse 8. So look at verse 8 again. Here's the specific application of the sowing and reaping principle. Verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what what Paul has in mind here is the difference between serving or submitting to your own sinful inclinations, that's sowing to the flesh, and on the other hand, serving or submitting to the Holy Spirit. So sowing to the flesh would include things like just living for yourself, indulging in sin, ignoring God. Sowing to the Spirit would include things like obeying God, trusting Christ as King, and as we'll see, it would include doing good to others. So as we think about verse 8, I think we can see three principles, three truths about how goodness fits into the Christian life. Two of them are related to sowing. One of them is related to reaping. So number one, the first way that verse 8 shows us how goodness connects to, links up with the broader Christian life is that goodness requires effort. Goodness requires effort. That's kind of built into the metaphor. The the whole idea of, of sowing and then reaping is that you have seed to sow. You have work to do. You and I have a life to spend. And it's not automatic how we'll spend it. We can spend it one way or another. So, walking in gospel freedom does not mean we do nothing. 
There's work to be done. Goodness requires effort. But number two, here's the second truth about how goodness fits into the Christian life. Goodness is also a result of faith. So because goodness is part of sowing, we can say it it must require effort on our part. There's something we need to do. There's a life we've got to spend. But at the same time, because we're sowing to the Spirit, I think we can say the effort required to do good is itself a product of faith. What I mean is this metaphor of sowing to the Spirit suggests that the effort Paul has in mind here, the effort he's going to call us to in verses 9 and 10, is not the effort of self-reliance or self-justification. This is the outworking of faith in Christ. I mean, think about how sowing seeds works. If you have a seed and you want to see it grow, you don't squeeze it in your hand and will it into growth. You take the seed and you entrust it to the ground. You, you entrust it to the sun and the water. And in the same way, if we rely on our good works to justify us before God, it doesn't work. But if we strive for good works because we are justified, if we seek to obey God out of our confidence in Christ, that is sowing to the Spirit. So goodness requires effort, but it is also a result of faith. It's an expression of faith. Third, goodness, according to verse 8, is necessary. Did you see what we reap when we sow to the Spirit? Don't don't miss this. The one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. So goodness for the genuine Christian is not optional. Now, this does not mean that our good works or our sowing to the Spirit somehow merits or earns eternal life. What Paul is saying is that even though we cannot be saved by good works, no saved person will lack good works. They are the necessary result and evidence of saving faith. I can remember when my wife Kira and I went to get our marriage license from the the county building. We had to produce, we had to provide birth certificates. Now think about a birth certificate. Uh, You don't earn it, and there's not any sense in which your birth certificate merits a marriage license. But, in my case at least, it did require some effort to find my birth certificate. It wasn't in my wallet. It wasn't just lying around close at hand. I had to to work to find it and, and produce it. But fundamentally, a birth certificate is just a certification of who I really am by birth. And good works function similarly for the Christian. Even though good works require our effort to produce, fundamentally, they simply show who we really are. 
in Christ. So good works take effort. They are a result of faith, and they are necessary. That's how goodness fits into the Christian life. That's verses 7 and 8. But what does goodness look like? What does it mean to do good or to be good? That's what verses 9 and 10 is about. Verses 9 and 10 uh, revolve around two commands. One in verse 9, one in verse 10. Look at verse 9. The command in verse 9 is, Let us not grow weary of doing good. The command in verse 10 is, let us do good. So two commands, one in verse 9, one in verse 10. Everything else in these verses is connected to these two commands. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Let us do good. So what does goodness look like? These verses, again, show us three things. Three characteristics of goodness in our lives. First, goodness is expressed through concrete actions. Goodness is expressed through concrete actions. This is evident in both commands, in both verses 9 and 10, because look at what uh, verb is connected to good in both cases. We are not told to feel good or to think good or to intend good. We are told to do good. The Bible values both inner authenticity and outward execution. Both matter. And this particular passage is emphasizing the outward execution. It is important to genuinely desire good things for other people, but it is also important to actually contribute good things to other people. Goodness is something we do. I find this really convicting. We were just driving home uh, two days ago from Fort Wilderness, and uh, we were talking about this. Kira brought this up. What are we doing? You see, we, it's, it's easy for us to act as if virtue consists in having the right opinion or holding the right position on an issue. Think about it. We have more platforms than ever to virtue signal or to do our moral posturing or to express righteous indignation. But this verse confronts us with the question, but what are you doing? After you've spoken out against abortion, what are you doing for moms and babies? After we have denounced racial injustice, what are we doing to make our communities better? After we've shared our opinion about what we think the government should or should not be doing in response to COVID-19, what are we doing to take care of the people around us? Young people, after you sign on 
and express agreement with the anti-bullying campaign at your school? What are you doing to befriend and stick up for the kid who still is getting picked on? Goodness is expressed in concrete actions. That's the first thing we see about what goodness looks like. The second thing in verse 9 is that goodness is worth it because of the hope of the gospel. Goodness is worth it because of the hope of the gospel. Look at verse 9. The command is not to grow weary of doing good. So think about some of the reasons why this is a danger. Why is it that we could grow weary of doing good? Well, one reason is that most of the good that we will do for other people in our lifetimes will not be spectacular or epic or monumental. It will be small and often overlooked. On top of that, most of the good that we do for other people happens in situations where we're obligated to do it. We are obligated to serve our parents, our kids, our siblings, our coworkers, our customers, our classmates. So much of our life is made up of obligations that demand that we do good to other people. And so the challenge is the demand for our help is unrelenting and the gratitude for our help is often lacking. And on top of all of that, goodness, doing good, always costs us something. Our time, our money, our reputation. So you put all of that together and it can be very easy to get discouraged, to think the, the cost and benefit is not adding up in all the good that I'm trying to do for all the people in my life. And so look at the reason Paul gives in verse 9 for why we should not grow weary. Look at verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This is the hope of the gospel. All the service, all the good that you're doing for other people that no one sees, no one recognizes, no one acknowledges, God sees. And God will reward. This is yet another example of how godly character, according to the Bible, is not timeless virtue for its own sake. Godly character is a response to the unfolding work of God's redemption. There's a difference. There's a difference between just trying to be good for goodness sake, and there's a between that and being good because you have placed your confidence in what God has done, is doing, and will do in Christ. So think about it. Because Christ has risen, is reigning, and will return, infinite goodness is stored up for all who believe in him. And that means even if you find yourself giving more good than you're getting in return, you cannot come up short. You cannot come up empty because 
of how the story ends. So as we see ourselves embedded in the story of God's redemption, the story of His grace through Jesus, we are reassured that all of our sacrificial acts of kindness and goodness and help are worth it because of how the story ends. Goodness is worth it because of the hope of the gospel. So goodness is expressed in concrete actions. Goodness is worth it because of the hope of the gospel. And third, goodness has an openness and a focus. This is verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That's pretty open. Let us do good to everyone, all people, all kinds of people. We are not given here a loophole or an exception. It does not say do good to everyone as long as their suffering is not self-inflicted. It doesn't say do good to everyone who is appreciative of it. It doesn't say do good to everyone who is living a godly life. It says do good to everyone. As we look around at the ethics and the values of the society around us, there is a lot we disagree with. And what we're increasingly finding is that society is looking back at us and they're offended by our disagreement. It's easy, it's tempting under those conditions to either withdraw or to fight. And there may be times where either of those responses is appropriate, but verse 10 is showing us that we ought to be known for active service even to those who are offended by us, even to those who are disgusted with us. That's the openness of goodness. But this openness comes with a focus. Look at how verse 10 continues. Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we have a heightened responsibility to do good to fellow believers. Uh, Other Christians have a special claim on our goodness because we're family. We, We belong to each other in Christ. If you uh, experience me as a, as a kind person, but then you catch me being mean to my wife or harsh to my kids, you will instinctively conclude that's the real me. And my kindness to you uh, is fake. I think something similar is true of us as Christians. If the world experiences us as pleasant, kind people to them, but then they notice that we are petty 
and mean and impatient and nasty with each other, they will conclude that any kindness shown to them must be fake. And so we are called to embrace both the openness of doing good, doing good to all, and also the focus of doing good, that we have a heightened responsibility to take care of each other, to do good to one another. So this is what goodness looks like. It's expressed in concrete actions. It's worth it because of the hope of the gospel. And it has both an openness and a focus. Christians make other people's lives better. We could say even more forcefully, Christians, precisely because they are Christians, make other people's lives better. For the first 300 years or so of church history, uh, Christians in the Roman Empire were a tiny, misunderstood minority. They were often viewed by their pagan neighbors as narrow-minded, bigoted, even a threat to the common good. But even though Christians were misunderstood, despised, sometimes persecuted, even though that was true, Christians became known for their deeds of compassion and mercy for the sick and the poor, both their own sick and poor and those of others. Social historian Rodney Stark has argued that the way Christians responded in particular to some of the devastating plagues of the first few centuries uh, of, the, of church history made a huge impact on the world around them. You see, the, the pagans, the, the polytheistic Greco-Roman world around the Christians, the pagans would flee the cities for the countryside when a plague would hit, and Christians would stay. The pagans would abandon even their own family members as they were dying, and the Christians would take care of them. The pagans would leave their dead in the streets, and the Christians would bury them. A century after one of these great plagues, there was a Roman emperor named Julian, And Julian was trying to revitalize uh, Roman pagan religion in the face of Christianity's growing influence. And one of his strategies for doing that was mobilizing pagan priests to imitate the compassion and the mercy of the Christians. And he actually wrote a letter that we have to one of these pagan priests. He said this, This is the Roman Empire writing to a pagan priest. The impious Galileans, he's talking about Christians, the impious Galileans, in addition to their own poor, support ours. And it is shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. Even among their enemies, Christians were known for making other people's lives better. 
by God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, may the same be said of us. Let's pray. Father, you have shown us immeasurable kindness. You have done us great good at great cost to yourself. We rejoice in that this morning, and we pray that that goodness and kindness would overflow in concrete actions for our neighbors, for our families, even for our enemies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.